Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast, everybody. I'm Josh, and there's Chuck, and Jerry's out there running around somewhere. Uh, And this is Stuff You Should Know about Fender and Les Paul Part 2. Should we recap real quick? Yeah, I think so. That seems appropriate. All right. Well, where we left off with part one was uh, Leo Fender, lifelong engineer, tinkerer, and non-musician, has made a career making amps and trying to figure out the problem with electric guitar feedback. Les Paul was a budding superstar guitar player and session player, Mm -hmm. also tinkerer, trying to figure out this problem of amplifying the electric guitar without feedback. Okay. And they were introduced in 1947... Trying to figure this out together, and then enters a third gentleman who may have had more to do with the invention of the solid body electric guitar as we know it than either one of them. Yeah, for real. This is Possibly. where things get a little bit shady. A little murky. When Cary Grant enters. <laughs> What's the guy's name? His C.C. Name DeVille? Paul, <laughs> his name is Paul Bigsby. And I've heard of the last name. I've, I've seen those guitars before. Is, it still, are the, is the company still around? Yeah, so here's the deal. Bigsby is now most well-known for what's called the Bigsby tailpiece, which okay. is he's the guy who kind of invented the whammy bar. If you know nothing about guitars, uh, but you've ever seen like Eddie Van Halen play, not all guitarists use these things, but if you hit a note and then you reach below the guitar and grab that little steel bar and make it go wow, 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 mm-hmm. that's a whammy bar. Bigsby invented that. And he is still most well-known, like you can get a Bigsby tailpiece put on to a Les Paul or an SG or uh, you can't to a to Fenders because they have their own. I guess you could with a Telecaster, but um, any guitar without a whammy bar, you could put on a Bigsby tailpiece. They're beautiful. They look great. And that's what they're kind of most well-known for today. Okay, gotcha. But at the time, Bigsby was, he was the oldest of, so Leo Fender, if you didn't realize, was older than Les Paul, and Paul Bigsby was older than Leo, and yeah. he, he had um, started out his career as a motorcycle racer, then went on to start to make uh, motorcycle parts, I believe, and then moved on to instruments, and he um, was known to Leo Fender in that they were competitors, because um, Bigsby also made electric steel gu- guitars at the time. Uh, I don't know if they were friendly necessarily, but I do know that they definitely worked together in Fender's workshop, um, kind of working on electric instruments together. So I would guess you'd have to be somewhat friendly. It wasn't like, you know, Macy's and Gimbals or anything like that, you know? <laughs> yeah, um, I think I think that's about right. Okay, so uh, they they definitely worked together at some point in time, and they were friendly enough to to do that. And they they were dedicated to creating that big electric sound out of a guitar. Um, and Bigsby, if you ever um, have seen those the guitars that he made, they were beautiful. They were it was a lot like Gibson. They were artisan, mm-hmm. um, just just crafted works of art basically yeah like um, one one at a time kind of things exactly and so he already had um paul bigsby already had a name for himself in in that respect and he was hanging out at a radio station as guitar makers do uh, in la um kxla which featured country music played live kind of like grand old opry stuff i guess 
And uh, a country musician named Merle Travis um, was there, I believe, playing. And Merle Travis knew Paul Bigsby, at least by reputation, and said, hey, you know, I heard you can build anybody whatever whatever they're looking for. If I draw you a picture of a guitar, can you make it for me? And I guess Paul Bigsby said, challenge accepted, good sir. And um, we should probably fast forward about a month or two, huh? <laughs> Yeah, and I just, again, I want to stress the fact that at one point in 1947, Les Paul, Leo Fender, and Paul Bigsby are all together in a garage in in Southern California. Mm -hmm. And this is like, I mean, it, it makes my mind explode to think about those three men in a room together, like working on something. I'm like, I'm trying to think of another industry where, like, three separate top brains got together like this and I can't even think of a of anything to compare it to. It'd be like if um Steve Jobs, Bill Gates and yeah. Paul Giamatti all got together. Right. <laughs> I couldn't think it's of it. Yes. Yeah. Uh so anyway, a very just special moment in history. So yeah, he comes back a few months later. Uh, with this guitar, Leo Fender is backstage at a show and Merle Travis is there playing and he pulls out this thing that, uh, Paul Bigsby made. And if you look up Merle Travis, Bigsby guitar, this thing is beautiful. It is a gorgeous guitar Mm -hmm. and looks like, and is a real deal, solid body electric guitar. Yeah. And he pulls it out in front of Leo Fender, no less, who said, Hey Merle, that's a pretty (laughs) neat looking guitar there. Uh, you mind if I get my hands on that for a little bit and just check it out? I want to see what it's all about. You know, I'm he, like, kicked his little guitars. black uh, prototype out of the way. <laughs> right. Uh, and Merle Travis was kind enough to let Leo Fender borrow it. And Leo Fender, and so so we should we should caveat this. Supposedly, Leo Fender, were he alive today, would be like, no, no, that's not true. No, this is not correct. But supposedly, there are informed people who say. Yeah. That Merle Travis let um, that let Leo Fender take his guitar that Paul Bigsby had made for him back to Leo Fender's workshop and basically have a, a reverse engineer session all over it. Yeah, this is where it gets a little hinky because Leo Fender was a great man and a great inventor of things, um, but what he was really really good at was improving things. He was like the Japanese. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> And um, they make some pretty good guitars, too, I think. Right, but they're, well, the Japanese are well known for taking something that's pretty right. cool and then just improving the heck out of it. Saying, like, here's how you should do it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, definitely a, a point in history, sort of a crossroads, where some people are like, Leo Fender stole this from Paul Bigsby and was able to mass produce it, whereas Bigsby was intent on making these artisan pieces one by one and just got left in the dust. Um there may be something to that. If you look at the headstock for that original Bigsby guitar and you look at the headstock and the headstock is at the the very end of the neck where the strings end up and where the little tuning pegs are. Yeah. It looks a lot like the Stratocaster headstock, almost exactly like it. And he denied kind of even ganking that. But in meetings at Fender later on, there were higher ups at Fender that said, go out and make us something like that Bigsby Mm-hmm. Like they literally said that. So it's kind of undeniable at this point. Um, he was even sued. There was a lawsuit that Bixby sent about the headstock. Imagine. Sure. And the, they basically said, you know, there were there were too many just sort of 
similar kinds of things before this, so it's not going to hold water. Well, not only that, um, there there is some there are other similarities too. Like you talked about that little whammy bar. Uh huh. Um, the the Bigsby had one, and it's called the Bigsby Pure Vibrato, where basically you're 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 pushing pushing down on a bar that's actually. Manip- I don't understand, actually, Chuck, what is manipulating. Maybe you should take this part. All I know is that it affects the sound like wow, 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 like that. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know the, the the mechanism by which it does the wow, 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 wow. It's thing. really easy because it's purely mechanical. It's uh, the guitar bridge is the part where you're, if you're right-handed players, where the right hand is, and that's where the strings are rooted. So what the whammy bar and what the Bigsby tailpiece did is – it lifts up the back of the bridge and it literally manually loosens the guitar strings mm-hmm. until you release it and then it snaps them back. So if you press on it, it just it's literally loosening the guitar string enough to make it go wow 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 wow. Oh neat. Okay. And, and that's so it. and you remember when you do this around the pickup, the, the metal strings, the steel strings affect the um, the electrical signal that's produced. So if you're messing with the strings, you're messing with the electrical signal and hence the sound. Right. Uh, the other thing we should point out that Leo Fender probably kind of stole was uh, the all the tuning pegs on the headstock are all on top and in one line. Mm-hmm. So if you look at Telecasters and Stratocasters and that's sort of the Fender thing, they're all in a row because it's just really easy to access them as a player, whereas uh, Gibson models were based on acoustic or Spanish guitars where there's three on one side and three on the other. Mm-hmm. And in order to turn to tune those lower strings, or I guess the higher strings, you have to reach under and around. And Leo Fender was, I guess he saw this design and was like, hey, that's kind of brilliant actually to put them all on one side. That's superior, frankly. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's really tough to get around. Like if you put the, I've, and there's plenty of pictures out there. If you put that first Bigsby Merle Travis guitar next to the first guitar that Fender ever mass produced, it's pretty much the same thing in a lot of ways. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't know. It was tough to swallow. But like you said, the idea, um, the idea of it impugning um, Leo Fender's character, right. It it just doesn't it doesn't quite make sense because he was a great guy and he did do a lot um, for the industry and he founded Fender which just that alone is pretty amazing too. But sure. w- one of the things that he doesn't necessarily get credit for, um, at least outside of like musicians circles, I'm guessing, but um, is is the bass that he created, right? Yeah, the precision bass. Um... Before the electric bass guitar, the basses were all the big standard upright basses, and they were a problem because they were huge. You either had to strap it to the strap it to the top of your car, uh, and you know potentially have it get beat up by weather, or you had to ride separately from the rest of the band because that thing filled up the entire back seat. They were just big and bulky and hard to transport. So uh, Leo Fender again was not the first. Um, a guy named Paul Tut. Mark, uh, who worked on, he was a, a big lap steel maker, and he founded the AudioVox company, which is still around. Oh, yeah. 15 years before the Fender P bass, the precision bass, he invented what's generally known as the first electric solid body bass guitar. It just didn't take off like the precision. Uh, and again, the P bass is called a precision because the upright bass doesn't have frets, so... If you knew how to play it, you know how to play it, but you couldn't be like, go to the fourth fret. You would just sort of... I see. 
not guess, but you would generally know where it falls. The electric bass guitar, the P bass had frets, so they said it had more precision. So that's why they called it that. But that's another thing that's easy to overlook, too, is oh, like, yeah. you know, the electric guitar, it's it's pretty different from like the electric Spanish guitar. But it's still in the same general, it's like a progression from that. The mm-hmm. electric bass was like whole cloth, a new invention, basically. And it changed everything, too. I mean, like I was reading an article, I think, yeah, that you sent from maybe Pitchfork, mm-hmm. um, where it was talking about like, just how much that changed things, having that around. Like, basically, Motown, and then later yeah. on, Funk. Like, like none of that would have existed without the electric bass. And, like, um, like another one bites the dust, and, like, Pink Floyd's <laughs> Dark Side of the Moon, and, like, yeah. you know, Parliament. Like, all of these, like, bands were predicated on the fact that there was, like, a nice, slappy electric bass that... Um, you just couldn't get around. You couldn't ignore it. It became like a, a part of the band rather than just some background thing that was more visual than than uh, audio or wait oral. Yeah, because the upright bass kind of ended up having the same problem as the acoustic guitar in that once they had electric guitars, that upright bass wouldn't really cut through live. Mm-hmm. And so you had you know the a song is driven by the rhythm section, the the bass player and the drummer. That's when you ever hear about the rhythm section, they they drive the heart of the song. Everyone follows them. Like, as much as you think as the guitar is out front, it's not leading the band. The, the, the low end is what's actually leading the song. And everyone else kind of falls in line with that because they're setting that beat with the bass and the drums. But he's he's working on this. And again, not to get in the weeds with the amps, but this whole time, he's making leaps and bounds uh, on amplification that works at really high volume with these Fender amps. Yeah, and then one of the other things that made Fender really innovative was he um, created the he created like instruments for everyday people. That was the yeah. big innovation for him. Like his company set out to create to bring this stuff to the masses, so that you know teenage kids could save up from, like, their after-school job and, like, buy one of these things and buy an amp and start a band and maybe actually get kind of good. And it, like, I mean, I hate to use this word because it's so overused these days, but he kind of democratized starting a Mm -hmm. band. Whereas before, you had to, you know, you you had, like, a 20-piece band and you had to know all these people and you had to do dance halls and everything. And now, you could, could, because everything was amplified and electrified, you could get away with just, you know, three or four pieces. And, um everybody could hear you and they could hear you louder than they could hear the big bands from before um, because it was amplified, but it was affordable. And he also made them really durable too. Yeah. And it was because he introduced kind of like a factory process to it. Whereas over at Gibson and Rickenbacker and Bigsby, they were all still making these hands kind of not one at a time, but they were making them by hand very slowly. Uh, One of the big reasons he was able to factoryize it was he started, he was the, basically the only company using a bolt-on neck. Um, so, in other words, you take the neck and you literally screw it in to the body of the guitar on the back. And that's why anytime you see a Fender guitar on the back, they have this little silver square plate where the neck meets the body. And mm-hmm. under that is where it's bolted together. Um, Gibson and basically everyone else was using uh, what's called set neck, which are glued on. And you might think that like, Hey, bolting sounds a lot better than glue. Yeah. But what glue does is that actually adheres it and makes it more like that log 
almost like a through neck. It makes it part of the body mm. and gives you more warmth and a little more sustain. And it's just a bit of a different sound. Whereas a bolt-on guitar got a little more known for sort of being kind of pluckier. And, you know, they both have their advantages. Some people swear by one or the other, but uh, neither like nowadays, neither one of them is superior to the next, really. It's just sort of two different methods. Gotcha. I gotcha. But I could also see that Bolt almost represents that mass production, too. It, you yeah, know? for sure. So, Chuck, um, Leo Fender's working on that um, big, we'll call it Bigsby-inspired design. And at the same time, um, Les Paul uh, is about to have a, a life-changing experience in Oklahoma, of all places, right? Yeah, so he, like I said, was not a good husband to either his first wife or his second, really. Uh, he had a long-time affair with a woman uh, her, with her stage name of Mary Ford. Uh, she was a singer and also a champion guitar player. Uh, and they had a, had a duo going on. It was Les Paul and Mary Ford, and they had tons and tons of number one hit records. And uh, they had been together for quite a few years before he, he even got divorced from his first wife. Uh, but in 1948, while traveling, I think, back to L.A. from Wisconsin, they were in a really bad car accident on the icy roads of uh, near Davenport, Oklahoma. And it was a, a, a really, really bad wreck that could have killed both of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, they were both thrown from the car along with all of their equipment. Um, and from what I understand, Mary's injuries weren't nearly as bad as Les's. No. Um, his spleen was all messed up, a bunch of other stuff. But the big problem for Les Paul was that his right elbow was shattered. And at first, the doctors said, well, we're going to have to amputate your arm. And that obviously would have been that for his guitar playing days. Yeah. Um, apparently when he was faced with this news, one of the first things he started doing was, um, coming up with how to create, um, an, an effect where you could play guitar one-handed. Um, but he luckily didn't ever have to actually follow through and invent that because, uh, some doctor was aware of his, his status and that he played guitar and like that. He just, they couldn't take his arm. So he set about trying to figure out how to solve the problem while keeping his arm and allowing Les Paul to somehow play one way or another. Yeah, I mean, he basically gave Les Paul the choice. He was like, you can either amputate it or we can try this procedure where we kind of screw your arm back together and we don't know if it'll work. And he he said, but it's going to be permanently bent in some kind of direction. And Les Paul said, why don't we at least try it first so we know if it works before we cut the arm off. And he said, and just bend it and point it toward my belly button and leave it there. Yeah. So he could play guitar. And that's what they did. And for the rest of Les Paul's life, like if you ever see a picture of Les Paul, that right arm is is bent. Yeah. And the doctor, just to put a little flourish on it, made it so that his thumb was always in the thumbs up position. (laughs) So it always looked like like Les Paul was really happy about whatever was going on when that picture was taken. All right, so that's where Les Paul is. He recovers. It literally takes him about a year in the hospital to fully recover from his injuries. So he's on pause. When Leo Fender builds uh, the Fender Esquire guitar and debuts it at the 1950 National Association of Music Merchants uh, Convention in Chicago. I say we take a break here, and then we come back and talk about that and keep going. How about that? That sounds great. Okay, we'll be right back. (laughs) 
All right, Chuck. So, um, so Leo Fender takes his um, uh, Paul Bigsby-inspired guitar uh, and creates a prototype out of it that's known as the Esquire. And I think there's some differences between the Esquire and what would become later known as a Telecaster, right? It's not the exact same thing, just with a different name? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think there was only one pickup, and the Tele ended up having a couple. But it was, when you look at pictures of the Esquire, it's the same body shape, very utilitarian, uh, not the most comfortable guitar to play, um, which we'll see later on was kind of a big deal in the creation of the Stratocaster. But it was a real deal guitar, and it was loud, it was clear, it could be mass-produced, mm-hmm. and everybody basically said, this is the future. Yeah, he's at a, the National Association of Music Merchants Convention going, hey, you like? You like this? <laughs> right. You like this guitar? And uh, they all said, yes, very much. So he went back after the convention and kind of tinkered with it a little more. Um, he had a collaborator named George Fullerton, uh, and they ended up producing from the Esquire. Uh, there were a couple of problems with it, apparently from the steel strings, when they were tuned tightly, um, eventually the neck would start to warp a little bit. Yeah. That's a big problem. So they figured out how to reinforce that with the rod. And they solved some other small problems and then ended up coming up with the broadcaster, right? That's right. Uh, a guy we should mention here is, um, I think Dave called him his marketing sales guy. It's true. He was that, Don Randall, but he was Leo Fender's 50-50 partner in the Fender Music Corporation. And a huge, huge part of this story that we really won't get into, but Don Randall was there the whole time and and sort of was everything that Leo Fender wasn't as far as when you're looking for a good business partner. Um, out there hitting the bricks, selling this thing, drumming up uh, deals. And uh, the broadcaster, you know, the ads came out and he got that first cease and desist from uh, Gretsch, the they made drums and guitars, and there was actually a drum set <laughs> called the Broadcaster with a K. It sounds like a, a, a sound you make when you burp and choke at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Broadcaster. No, Gretsch. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I misread that one. Sorry. <laughs> you no, know, Broadcaster with a K sounds evil, remember? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Gretsch still makes beautiful guitars and great drums, but they had a drum set with a K. Uh, so they said, all right, we got to think of a different name. And so TV was the latest thing, and so they literally called it the Telecaster because of that. I know. And people were like, boy, howdy, I love this. (laughs) They did. So that was a big deal. The Telecaster was, I guess, the first mass-produced, widely available electric guitar, solid-body electric guitar that shredded, that you could shred on, I guess. Yeah, it kind of started it all. Yeah, and so um, Les Paul, by this time, uh, he had gotten in that car wreck in 1948. You said it took him about a year to recover. Um, He got divorced from his wife. He ended up marrying Mary Ford. Um, And together, they actually, his his music career got even even greater than it was when he was working with Bing Crosby. Yeah. Um, This is when they had four slots on the Billboard top charts. Uh, at one time, on one week. That's enormous. They were the first to do it. I'm sure maybe some others like Michael Jackson, the Beatles, and a couple others have done it since. But that really kind of gets across just how huge Les mm-hmm. Paul was as a popular musician, right? Yeah. Uh, Mary was great, and um, everyone loved her. She had a beautiful voice. Uh, again, he was not a good husband to her. He was 
uh, eventually when they got divorced, uh, it was on grounds of uh, cruelty was one of them because oh, yeah. he was just a, a, a workaholic and would never stop and he would not let her stop. And she was like, we're, they were really, really wealthy at this point mm-hmm. from their career. And she was like, can we enjoy life a little bit? Can we stop and, and live? And he was like, no, like we're not getting anything accomplished if we're doing that. And the stage uh, act was a little, I mean, I guess for the time it was what it was, but it was kind of misogynistic. He would make cracks about about Mary, you know, singing in between doing the dishes and and kind of, you know, making him dinner. And she would sort of laugh. And it was their banter, but it was just the whole thing was kind of gross in retrospect. Yeah, for sure, especially today. And then the cats on the unicycles with the sparklers, it was just <laughs> widely considered to be over the top. Yeah, way over the top. So, um, but because Leo knew Les Paul, I mean, like you said, they they and Paul Bigsby were all working in a garage together, working on electric guitars. Like he knew him, he was friendly with them enough so that um, Leo Fender and Don Randall said, you know, if we could get Les Paul, who's like the most well-known guitar player in the world, to endorse our Fender guitars, this would be a huge deal. Huge. So they sent him a, a Telecaster and with a note saying like, hey, this is where I'm going. I'd like you to to consider coming here with me, something along, I'm paraphrasing. Um, and uh, Les Paul was like, nah, that's all right. I don't really like this guitar that much. Yeah, I think he was fairly kind about it, but he just said the sound is too bright. It had that bolt-on neck. And, you know, it's a different sound and he didn't like it. And remember, like, that was the whole reason he dedicated himself to coming up with the electric guitar and cracking this code for a decade or more, a couple decades by then, because he wanted to, he was searching for that one perfect sound. And so that actually, he didn't give up the quest after Fender said, you know, here's my guitar and it didn't work. Um, Les Paul, despite having been turned away by Gibson a full decade before, went back to Gibson and said, hey, you guys have to listen to me this time. Like it's this is this is where things are going. Look, look Leo Fender's just come out with this Telecaster. Like it's very clear that you guys need to be developing a solid body electric guitar. And Gibson said, "Funny you should mention that because we've been working on it ever since we saw that Esquire at that music convention and it knocked our socks off." That's right. So they were kind of already on it. Um they were different. They were they were sort of modeled after those acoustics with the tuning pegs on both sides. Uh, the Gibson guitar was really heavy. And that's, it, it's funny, later on, many, many guitar players started with what would end up being the Les Paul, mm-hmm. Eric Clapton and, the, uh, and uh, Keith Richards and all these people played the Les Paul early on. And a lot, I think uh, Pete Townsend, and they all eventually switch to Fenders later in their career because the Les Paul weighs between nine and 10 pounds mm-hmm. and the Strats and Tellys weigh about seven pounds. And oh, that's a big difference. Two or three pounds strapped on your back when you're touring is a, a big deal. Like I can tell a difference when I play a heavy guitar, you know, being 50 years old in my basement after a few hours. So I can imagine what like touring year after year, what it, what kind of toll that takes. For sure. For sure. But this Gibson was heavy. Uh, it had that glued on neck, which uh, gives you a little more warmth, a little more resonance. And uh, it was a really good guitar. And so they say to Les Paul, like, now he's being courted by Gibson officially. Like, hey, what do you think of this? We will let this be your guitar. We will slap your name on it. We'll give you a 5% royalty. And you've got to play it exclusively. And he said, a done deal, my friends. Yeah, because he was like, 
like he'd always only played Gibson. He loved Gibson. This is like a dream come true for him, you know. And for them also to come back to him now, um, oh, sure. had to had to feel awfully sweet. Yeah. But it was so stupid too because this is a decade after he went to them with this idea the first time, and now they're <laughs> finally getting around to it. But it was a big deal. So Les Paul now played. Gibson guitars exclusively, and they named that first model the Lebson, uh, the Gibson Les Paul. Yeah, I, I wonder if in that meeting he said, "Can also tell people that I uh, I designed and invented this thing because that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life." Just so you're cool with it. Yeah, which which is really something because he apparently didn't. There's a guy named uh, I think Paul McCarty, George Ooh, McCarty. So <laughs> I think George McCarty. I'm sorry. I'm pretty sure his his name is George McCarty. Um, he was the president of Gibson at the time. His last name is McCarty. Let's just call him that. Or Mr. X. Mr. X was the president of Gibson at the time. <laughs> and he um, largely designed the guitar. But yeah, they kind of let, I guess as part of the endorsement deal, they let um, Les Paul just basically claim it like he'd yeah. had a lot to do with it. He made some tweaks. Um for sure, but he he never designed the Les Paul. That that is also a fact, right? And he did not invent the electric guitar. A lot of people still say that Les Paul invented the electric guitar, and he was always happy to just sort of nod his head, <laughs> right? All right, Chuck. So like by the by the mid fifties, by the early fifties, um, Fender had the Telecaster out. Um, Gibson had their Les Paul model out. So there were now widely available electric guitars being produced and that that sounded awesome. Like this sound had finally been achieved. Loudness, clarity, shreddingness, gnarliness, all mm-hmm. of that stuff was now extant in the world. It did not exist before. Now it did. But the the one that really changed everything, the the electric guitar that changed it all was um Fender's if not their second model, they're definitely their second well-known model, the Stratocaster, right? Which came out in 1954. Yeah, this was a huge innovation because the problems with the Tele is that it, uh, like I said, it was it was it wasn't rounded, it wasn't sharp, and I'm talking about the edges of it. It was, you know, it kind of dug into your body and wasn't super comfortable. So Leo Fender does what he does, which is make improvements like the Japanese. <laughs> and he got onto the back of it and he he carved out where the top of the back of the guitar meets your belly. He shaved that down to where it was contoured. And then where your right arm, if you're a right hand player, your pick hand, where it uh where your forearm kind of rests on the top front of the guitar, mm-hmm. he carved that down too and contoured it. So your arm and your belly weren't pressed against these sharp edges. Mm-hmm. And it was just a more comfortable guitar all the way around. It had a it had a cool look. This was a time in the early 50s, uh, mid-50s, when, you know, these these cars has, had these big fins on them, and everything just had this sort of look. Like, it, it's hard to describe what the how weird the Stratocaster and how sort of modern and futuristic it looked at the time, because mm-hmm. we all just see that as like, oh, that's what a guitar looks like. Exactly. But at the time, it was revolutionary, and everyone literally was like, what in the world is that hot-looking thing? Yeah, one of the other things that made it look hot, those fins um, had a purpose. The horns at the top of the guitar where the neck met the body, Mm -hmm. um, it carved out space. So you could get your fingers to press those frets on the higher notes a lot more easily than you could have before when you were reaching all the way around it, which again allowed for greater shredding. That's right. And the the fenders did those on both sides, whereas the Les Paul 
was only carved on the underside. So mm-hmm. you could still get to some strings, but it took a little bit of finagling. Uh, later on, Les Paul would come up, and I have one of these too, ha- uh, what's called the double cut, where it's cut on both sides and the Gibson SG, which is cut on both sides. But originally, it was just Fender doing that. And then the Les Paul did something that just did away with that altogether and made the coolest guitar of all time, the Flying V, which is the one I always associate with heavy metal. And by Les Paul, of course, I mean Gibson. But that yeah. that that's the one, like, Jimi Hendrix played that one. Like, um, I can't remember. Like, a bunch of people played it. You've seen this before. But well, it Hendrix looks, played a Strat. Well, he also played a Flying V. I've seen, oh, okay. I've seen pictures of it on the internet. Um, but the, the um, like, it's what you associate with, like, like just just rocking out with a guitar. And it turns out the thing was designed in 1958. It's one of the most mind-blowing I facts I learned in this podcast. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. Because I associated it with 80s hair metal. And um, it's been, it, w- it had been around for a good 30 years by then. And it had, like the 50s is when this thing came out. It's like the coolest looking guitar of all time for my money. No, I love the Flying V. And I'll probably own one at one point. Uh, at some point, you should look up Reverse Flying V because they are mm-hmm. one of the ugliest guitars. Yeah, I've seen that before. Uh, but yeah, Gibson was tinkering around. They made the Flying V and they made the Explorer, which is the one that's kind of looks like a lightning bolt. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the Firebird. And those all did okay, but they they weren't like, you know, and Leo Fender did the same thing. After the Stratocaster success, he came up with the Jazzmaster and the Jaguar. And he thought these were all improvements on those guitars because they added a lot more options for switches and switching and additional pickups. But they were... I mean, they're kind of cool now, but they were a little busy for a lot of players back then. So they didn't take off like the Strat did. It was just this utilitarian, really comfortable player's guitar Mm -hmm. that everyone really wanted after Buddy Holly uh, jumped on TV and and played one because Buddy Holly was huge. Yeah, he was huge. And he was actually bigger in the UK than he was in America at the time. Oh, yeah. and I, I didn't realize this either. This is another fact of the podcast. There were two tours of the UK in 1958 that changed music history. I just think it's so cool. But one was Buddy Holly, who Buddy Holly and the Crickets went on tour in 1958 with the Stratocaster front and center. And then Muddy Waters came to the UK. And Muddy Waters had been around for years by then. He actually was just kind of like an old relic in America by then. But it was super cool in the 60s in the UK to be into old-style blues. So they brought Muddy Waters over. And Muddy Waters didn't show up with a Spanish-style guitar. He showed up with a Stratocaster and blared it. Then those two tours produced bands like The Beatles, The Who, The Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, um, like Basically, every band in the British Invasion were in the audience as kids or slightly younger men uh, for those two tours and were inspired to go on and form some really uh, amazing bands afterward. Yeah, it was funny. It was kind of like either you were in the Beatles camp where you saw Buddy Holly and you wanted to do sort of upbeat pop music or you were Eric Clapton going to see Muddy Waters and you wanted to do this sort of raunchy blues rock thing. Right. But either way, it was a Stratocaster front and center. And uh, another, well, I guess we should take a break now before we get to the next guy, right? All right, let's do it. All right, we'll take our final break and talk about surf guitar legend Dick Dale right after this. (laughs) 
Okay, well, wait, hold on. Let me do it differently. We're back. <laughs> all right, so all these people are being influenced uh, by people like Buddy Holly and Muddy Waters. Then comes a gentleman named Dick Dale in the 1950s. Uh, the you know everyone knows him now, of course, as the the head of the surf guitar surf music movement, and that was big. That wasn't just like a sort of like oh some people listen to that. That was like the the most popular form of music for a little while in the 1950s. Mm-hmm. And Dick Dale's thing was he wanted he was the first guy to really want enormous amounts of volume, like more than just like let me amplify this so it can cut through. He wanted to blow people's eardrums out. And he actually accidentally blew out Leo Fender's eardrum when they were working together trying to figure out this problem. Uh, Leo Fender bent down and said he he thinks he hears a hum. He said, don't play for a minute. He literally put his ear on the amplifier speaker. And no one knows what happened uh, if he bumped the guitar or something, but cranked all the way up, which is how you would listen for a buzz or a hum. He literally destroyed uh, one of Leo Fender's ears. So now he's down to one ear and one eye. Yeah, Leo Fender famously clutched his ears and went, Gretch, my ears. (laughs) And they said, hey, we'll sue you for that. It's like uh, Marty McFly getting blown across the room in Doc's Doc's, uh, (laughs) lamb. Sort of is. Uh, But he was uh, a huge, huge influence on um, achieving volume for rock bands that would come along later. Uh, I actually saw him in Athens, you know, uh, toward not toward the end of his life because he just died a few years ago. But mm-hmm. it was saw him at the forty watt. It was Neat. amazing. That's awesome. I bet that was Very a cool, cool show. Yeah, supposedly he inspired Jimi Hendrix. Um, he was like a, a a guitar god himself for sure, an overlooked one. I, I saw, an, I think, an article you sent that it he's not in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is like the kookiest thing I've heard in a while. It's ridiculous. Weird. Um, yeah. So he's playing the Strat. The Beach Boys are playing Fenders. Uh, we have to shout out legendary session bass player Carol Kay, sure, uh, a woman among men who played the Fender Precision Bass. Bonnie Raitt. On, yeah, I mean, if you think of just about any popular song from the 1950s and 60s, there's probably about a 75% chance that Carol Kay played bass on it. Oh, Nita. Yeah. Every Motown song, every Beach Boys up record, like you name it. Wow, that's really cool. I hadn't heard of her. Yeah, it was. Uh, there's a great documentary called The Wrecking Crew mm-hmm. about these legendary studio musicians who basically played all that stuff. Like the Beach Boys didn't play their instruments on the records. What? It was The Wrecking Crew. Be quiet. Don't tell me things like that. I'm sorry. Brian Wilson's a genius, but he played bass on stage. Carol Kay played bass in the studio. <sighs> okay. So um, Leo Fender, here's the thing about him. Remember we said that he was a tinker and engineer? Those guys don't translate to head of. Uh, highly successful and grow, quickly growing company very well. Right. They tend to get a little stressed out and overwhelmed. And that's exactly what happened to good old Leo. He apparently had ulcers, which has nothing to do with stress, as we learned, thanks to the guinea pig scientist who drank a bunch of um, that bacteria to prove that it was caused by a bacteria rather than stress. You remember? Right. Anyway, so he tried to sell out in the early 60s, I believe, yeah. And um I guess Brandel didn't accept it. What do you why why not? I think they had been partners for so long. At Randall, it seems like genuinely thought like you don't understand the value of this company. You're oh, asking for a cool. million dollars. Yeah. And so he started uh courting other companies. He courted Baldwin to sell the whole company. Mm-hmm. He courted eventually CBS uh CBS, CBS Records. Mm-hmm. 
and they ended up paying what would be the equivalent of $110 million for the Fender Music Corporation. And Don Randall and Leo Fender each got checks uh, for $5 million bucks, which is about 50-something million dollars today. That's amazing. Wow, Don Randall was great. Great guy to have in your corner, huh? He really was. Um, and they were friends. And I think, you know, Leo also had this – he was just always in bad health. He had this – and I had never heard of this. But he had a case of strep that apparently literally never went away. Like he had it for years and years Man, and years. Sucks. And was having always strep sick. for a week sucks, but I can't imagine <laughs> having a chronic case of strep. Yeah, so he uh I think part of the terms of the deal was there were two parts of the company that were brand new that didn't make any money. They actually lost money, which was the Fender Rhodes electric piano, mm-hmm. which everyone was like, what the heck is this? Of course, now it's amazing. Sure. And then the Fender Acoustic Division, which really never did take off, like I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. And part of the deal was that they had to include those, even though they weren't profitable. So he said, fine. And then they had to keep Leo on for five years as a consultant, which they were happy to do. And I think he couldn't do anything else with anyone. I think he had a non-compete for 10 years. Wow. But he would go on later to start new companies even after that. And he died in 1991. Um, he lived a pretty pretty good life, pretty good long life, got to tinker for a pretty long time, ended up being a wealthy man and, and really kind of like became one of the people who's known as the inventor of the electric guitar, for better or worse. Um, and Bless Paul's story kind of took a slightly different turn um, than Leo Fender's. Leo wanted to fade into the background. That decision was made for Les Paul, not necessarily mm-hmm. um, in in conjunction with his wishes. His innovations with electric guitar, his and Leo Fender's creation and, and introduction of electric guitars, changed music like we saw. Um, created rock and roll, or led the the found ba- created the foundation that rock and roll was built on. And all the kids said, uh, we don't really like Les Paul's music anymore. So this yeah. he created this monster that ended up swallowing him, basically. Um, yeah. And he kind of faded off into uh, into nothingness there for a little while. He was going to become this obscure, incredibly wealthy guy. Yeah, he got divorced from Mary, like I said earlier. Um, he ended up getting custody of the kids, which was just crazy at the time. Uh, and that was kind of the only thing she wanted. It was a really ugly kind wow. of public divorce. Yeah, that's ugly. It was very sad. And he, uh, you know, I mentioned the Gibson SG earlier, the solid guitar. They made that to be lighter and to kind of compete with these. That was originally called the Gibson Les Paul SG. Mm-hmm. And eventually he he didn't like it at all. So they took his name off of it. And then it was just the Gibson SG. And yeah, he just kind of faded away. He he lived to be 92. I mean, he had a, a great life, like you said, as a wealthy guy who... He would always play these live kind of small club gigs in New York and very famous people like Slash would stop through and everyone would come through to play with Les Paul and he would regale people with stories. And it wasn't like a sideshow act. He just he he couldn't fill large halls anymore, basically. Yeah, but he, you know, he he got the recognition that he I'm sure liked. I mean, he seemed like a pretty good guy as, as long as you weren't married to him. Um, but he uh he's known as like the guitar god's guitar god I saw put somewhere that like if you are a guitar player a guitar hero you look up to Les Paul for what he did not just with creating or helping to create or at least saying that he created the electric guitar but also for all the other innovations that he really did invent like multi-track recording and sound on sound you know yeah and just to sort of button up the story of the guitar itself 
they only made them in 59, 60, and, or I'm sorry, 58, 59, and 60. Made 2,400 of these. And after Muddy Waters is when people like Eric Clapton and Pete Townsend and uh, like kind of any big English guitar player at the time played Les Pauls. Mm-hmm. Remember how I was saying at the very beginning in the first episode how when Fender was up, Les Paul was down on the other way around. Mm-hmm. The Strat kind of changed the world. And then the Strat became kind of uncool for a little while. Mm-hmm. In the 60s, when all these guys started playing the the Les Paul, Jimmy Page, of course, and um, people are like, wait a minute, we need Les Pauls. Like, there was only 2,400 of them. So they started making them again by popular demand in, I think, 60-something? Uh, yeah, 68. And they never went out of um, production again. Yeah, 68, they start making them again. And since then, it's, you know, there are plenty of people who have both. But the question sort of always, unless you play like an off, like like a Rickenbacker or something, people are always like, are you a Gibson person or a, or a Fender person? Sure. And I'm a Gibson person. Always have been. That's neat. Well, Les Paul ended up, he died in 2009, but he uh, ended up being the only person to date who has been inducted in both the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and the National Inventors Hall of Fame, which is pretty cool. Pretty amazing. Great story. That's it. The story of the solid body electric guitar as told through the eyes of Leo Fender and Les Paul, the end. Thanks for indulging me on this. It was a good one, man. It was nice to hear you just so just jazzed, like a precision jazz bass. Well, after 13 years, it was I've, we finally tackled something I knew something about. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> well, if you want to know more about uh, the electric guitar, go pick one up. See what happens. And maybe you'll start your own shredding rock band yourself. Uh, and since I said shredding rock band, of course, it's time for listener mail. Uh, you know what? Let's not do a listener mail today. What? Uh, unless we, we, we do this occasionally where we will not do listener mail and ask people for a favor. We do this like once every three years. Yeah. <laughs> Never been good at self-marketing, but we like to call out occasionally for people to go on iTunes or your pod player of choice, leave reviews, leave ratings. It helps us out. Uh, I don't care how long we've been around. We still need people saying positive, hopefully positive things about us mm-hmm. out there. So uh, instead of listener mail, just do us a favor. Tell a friend about us. Tell a relative. Tell a coworker that they might hate us or love us. <laughs> Well done. That's why we only do this at once every three years. <laughs> That's right. So clunky. Well, like Chuck said, uh, we would love it if you left us a review, specifically a positive one, but whatever, you know, speak from your heart. How about that? That's what Josh and Chuck think you should do. And in the meantime, if you want to get in touch with us as well, as always, you can send us an email to stuffpodcast at iheartradio.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.